Take your Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to know that how God sees you is a lot better than how you see you. And He really knows you. But we often talk about the identification truth, meaning that I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I was risen with Christ. And I ascended with Christ. I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now that means that when we get to heaven, we've already got the blessings waiting on us. But in God's eyes, as though we've already received them, because you see, God can't lie. It's in concrete. He doesn't make mistakes, and He doesn't stutter. So what God says, it is true. Even though we may not see it that way, we see us down here in this ugly old world, and we often talk about the pie in the sky, and we've got to live in the nasty here and now. But I want you to notice this. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, it says in verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance, which is the down payment. In other words, the Holy Spirit that was promised by Jesus Christ to His disciples that He would ask the Father and the Father would send the Holy Spirit. So when you and I trust Christ as Savior, according to verse 12, talking about Christ, in whom ye also believed. And that's why He says, in whom you trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we have the Holy Spirit that seals us in Christ. And so where Christ is, is where we are. Because God sees us in His Son. That's why when God sees us, He doesn't see us having our righteousness. He sees us having the righteousness of Christ. Because He has given to us His robe of righteousness. We're made as perfect, as righteous as God. And so He makes a statement that you and I, even though we're saved by grace, we were also determined by God, ordained by God, to bring forth good works. So we look there in verse 10 of chapter 2. In verse 10 he says, for we are his workmanship. In other words, God saved you by grace. It was his work, not your work. If there's anything, this verse ought to show. It is his work, not our works. It's not by our works, lest any man should boast. So all that we had to do is accept what Christ did for us. He gives us eternal life. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That means your new birth is because you're now in Christ. You and I will never fully understand this until we get to heaven. And then how much he'll let us know, I don't know. But look what he says. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, does God want us to produce good works? Yes. God has ordained you to perform good works. God is not willing that any should perish. But will some people perish? Yes. So people can deny and defy the will of God. A child of God, you may have eternal life. You're going to heaven when you die. But you can defy the will of God for your life. God may want you to serve Him, but He gives you a free will, a choice. He does not make us trust Him. He does not make us serve Him. 
but he will cause you to suffer the consequences of your decisions. So there's verses that talks about you do not mock God. What does it mean to mock God? It means don't make fun of God. Don't think you can play games with God and get away with it. As though you can sin anything you want and get away with it. No, you can sin. And you can choose whatever sin you want to commit. But God is also free to judge you any way he sees fit. And it might be to take you home before your time. Now, he could let you just live down here and be miserable. But God will chasten his children. So you know that, you understand that. And when he makes a statement here, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So I believe that it is the will of God that we walk in good works. It's the will of God. It's what God wants us to do. Now, if you will, look there in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, it makes a statement in verse 15. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So there is a whole family of God. There are those that have already gone on to be with the Lord, but they're still part of our family. We are down here, they are up there, but we're in the same family. And so he says, while we are here and not there, there's something he wants us to know. And he says in verse 16, that he would grant unto you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. So it is the will of God, yes, to produce these good works. It's also the will of God that by the Holy Spirit of God that lives within every child of God to strengthen us, to strengthen us, that we might perform the thing that God has for us in the inner man. So while we're here in the body of flesh, we are to live in the new man, in the new birth. So that means that God wants to strengthen us and make us strong enough to do the things we're supposed to do. Now in chapter 4, it talks about the old man, the new man, a choice. It is not the will of God that we walk in the flesh. It is the will of God that we yield to the new birth and walk accordingly. So there's things that God wants us to do. Even though God already sees the end from the beginning, we are going to be there. It's like we often say, you know, well, I've already cheated. I read, read the last book in the book of Revelation or the chapter, and, and we win. Yet we win. We win. Why? Because we're going to get there. We're going to be there. But not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ did for us. But that's not all there is to it. There's so much that God wants us to know and to do. And so that time between when you trusted Christ and when you get to heaven, God has something he wants us to know. He has something he wants us to do. So he makes a statement here that we are to serve the Lord, but be prepared for a battle. Now look there in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, 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 my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, a few years ago, well, a number of years ago, I was sitting in a restaurant 
I had me a piece of paper, usually a bunch of napkins, and I, I write and scribble. And I make a few little notes here and there. And so I kept thinking about the, you know, I guess you could call it the perfect storm. Anybody ever heard the phrase, the perfect storm? The perfect war, the perfect storm, the perfect trial, the perfect temptation. It means it comes complete. It's got everything there. Nothing's lacking in this storm. Everything is there. All right. It don't take much to humor some people. Am I there now? <laughs> okay, maybe I need to glue it to my face. Put a rubber band around here and put it on this ear over here, and it'll hold it right there. So, now you know, it's very difficult for me to maintain a train of thought when so little can humor so many. I guess it could be kind of like, you know, the sermon I preached one time on the camel and the gnat. There's a sermon there. But anyway, to think for a moment about the perfect storm, you'd want to have everything just right. When you think about a guy by the name of um, Job, wouldn't you say that that was the perfect storm? I mean, there was nothing lacking there. He had everything go wrong. I mean, his wife, that would be called just a storm in itself. She only thing she did was tell him, why don't you just curse God and die? Really encouraging words. What about when you lost 10 kids? That would have been a storm in itself that some people have to go through and have to Really, that would be a great trial of affliction. Uh, what about if you lost all of your cattle, all of your wealth, you know, your money in your bank and the stocks and bonds, and uh, you lose all of that all at one time? That would be in itself would be a, a, a pretty good-sized storm. Or if you lost your health, he even lost his health. Everything seemed like happened. So it's as you go through life, we get bits and pieces of this as we go. But the perfect storm for all of it to hit at one time. Have you ever thought that sometimes when you go through something, it seems like when it rains, it pours? It seems like it's just not one little thing or two little things. It seems like a whole bunch of things go wrong all at the same time. Well, maybe God is simply giving to you the perfect storm. I mean, something that tries you in every area of your life all at once. Wouldn't that drive you nuts? Aren't you glad that God sometimes, he tempers some of that and just lets you have one little bitty thing at a time? Isn't God good? And you'd be surprised how you still will complain about it. And remember, if you don't pass the test, what do you got to do? You got to take it over. There's a God in heaven that's given us test. And we have to pass the test or we have to take it over. Some of God's children have never gotten out of kindergarten. They're still in kindergarten, playing in the sandbox. Now, if I was to tell you, how old is Ryan? Seven years old. If I told you that me and Ryan went out and played a game of basketball, I tore him up. 
tore him up. I mean, I made basket after basket. I just beat the tar out of him. Would you be impressed? Why? Because my opponent isn't up to the standard of my professionalism. Now, you're not impressed because of the competition. I mean, my opponent wasn't worthy of me. I was so much better than little Ryan. But one of these days, Ryan's going to grow up. He might even be seven foot tall. He might even play professional basketball. Then if he comes back to play me, and now I'm 95 years old. And he's 20 years old, playing for the, you know, the pros. Now I would have a challenge on my hand, but if I beat him. You see, you're judged not by you. You had a problem. You had a battle. But what was the quality of this battle? What was the quality of the battle? I was, I haven't seen the rest of it, but they were playing golf today. And they had these big-name golf players up there. Now, if I was playing with them, and they beat me, big deal. All they did was beat an old man. Because there's no competition there. If you want to be rewarded when you get to heaven, you're going to have to have a decent size battle. Something that really challenges you. So I sat down one day in a restaurant and I wrote an outline of what I considered the ultimate warrior. It's in my book. The ultimate warrior. I just want to give you parts of it for right now because of some things I want to say. A soul winner is an ultimate warrior. But I want to leave off the word soul winning for right now. I just want to talk to you about being an ultimate warrior. Because an ultimate warrior has got to look for the ultimate war. War, he doesn't have anything. I mean, little skirmishes, oh, little skirmishes, but you want, a, you want a big battle. Something that really shows what you're made out of. As they say, what kind of metal do you have? I mean, do you have, you know, a piece of rebar down your backbone or a piece of spaghetti? What are you made out of? How tough are you really? So that's why when they have competition, they have all these football teams get out there and knock each other around and try to see who's the best. And then they keep on going until they finally get to the Super Bowl. And hopefully they've got two worthy opponents. And that's what all it is, knocking out everybody until they get to the two that's the best. And then they get in there and go at it. Because, you see, they know that if you're going to win, you've got to have a worthy opponent. Well, here you are. God wants to reward you. And he got the perfect, the ultimate weapons for you to fight with. He's already designed where you've got the ultimate enemy, the devil, the devil. And you are going to have a battle. And now I'm not talking to somebody I asked one time. I said, do you believe in the devil? He says, I sure do. Married a sister. 
Well, anyway, the ultimate warrior needs the ultimate weapon. The ultimate weapon, according to Ephesians 6, 17, is the sword, which is the word of God. So God has given you the ultimate weapon you need to fight the ultimate enemy in the ultimate battle. Isn't God good? He didn't tell you to fight a battle and then give you nothing to fight with. That would be terrible. Also, he says, the strength, which is the Holy Spirit. So he gave you a sword, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit. And if you know how to use them and let the Holy Spirit use you, you'd be surprised. You may have a chance of winning. So it's not like that God didn't give you what you needed to fight this ultimate battle. It's just you didn't use it. What God made available. The next point I brought out was the ultimate warrior needs the ultimate mission. What does God want me to do? I don't want to do some little bitty thing. I want the ultimate mission. All right, he gave us one. One of the greatest things that a man can do in his whole life. All right, what is the great thing that God has? He gave us the great commission, the great command. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And lo and behold, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. So we have been given a command. That is a big command. You mean, how long do I have to do this? I mean, do I do it six months? The Mormons do it for two years. They go on a mission trip, pay their own way, and they don't get nothing, no help from back home, and they got to go and off on their own, go across, around the world, and live for two years, and do that, and they come back. Every one of them. And here we are, and no, nobody wants to do that. Nobody's prepared. But they do that. And they reach millions and millions and millions of people. God's people have the truth. And most of them cannot commit themselves to it. Because the devil defeats them. Defeats them. And uh, I think it's something we need to ultimately think about. The mission, which is to preach the gospel to every creature and in every generation. You see, I'm not responsible for the next generation except to reach the people of this generation that's supposed to reach the next generation. So my responsibility is to reach and to train people who can reach the next generation. You see, it's one thing to win people to Christ. It's another thing to reach people who can reach somebody else and then somebody else and somebody else. That's what makes church so important because you learn the discipline that you need to serve the Lord. The other point that I brought out was the message. I mean, if you've got a mission, you ought to have a message. And the message, of course, is what God's given to us, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, not just anything that you want, but the gospel, the gospel itself. And the gospel, of course, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what he did for us so that we could be justified by faith. And so the ultimate warrior needs the ultimate enemy. Now, I know you may think your wife is the ultimate enemy. You may think it's your husband. Sometimes you might think it's the kids or it's that boss you are. No, those are only people that the devil uses. Sometimes you need to think, what's behind this? What's behind this? 
Have you ever noticed sometimes that little woman's just so sweet, nice, and kind? All of a sudden, she can turn mean and ugly just that quick. Now, don't blame everything on the devil. I don't want you to do that. Sometimes she is just plain mean. In the <laughs> Sometimes you can't figure them out. But you have an ultimate enemy, one that's worse than all the others. So your boss may be bad, but he's not the ultimate enemy. And your wife and kids, may, and a husband, but they're not the ultimate enemy. I'm not your enemy. But there is an ultimate enemy that's behind the scenes that you cannot see. And the Bible describes him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour because he's hungry as can be. And he devours you. And you'll notice in the book of Galatians in chapter 5, he says, Love one another and be kind one to another and do not devour one another. So whenever Christians are devouring each other, it's because the devil is controlling one of them. And that's why, see, he's using you to devour somebody else. So there's a devil behind the scenes. That's why you need to always realize the devil wants to use me. And you need to understand God wants to use me. You are the one that decides who gets to use you. Do you want the devil to use you? All you have to do is find out if he's using you is, remember, the devil always gets you to say and think and do that which is wrong. The Holy Spirit cannot lead you wrong. The Holy Spirit can't lead you contrary to the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit will always lead you to do right. And if whatever you're doing isn't right, surprise, somebody's got control of you. And see, they can't control you unless they can get control of that old sinful nature of yours. Remember I told you this? The only reason you can catch a rat with a piece of cheese is because there's something on the inside of the rat that likes cheese. The reason the devil can use sin to catch us with and lure us with is because we like sin. We have something on the inside of us that likes to sin. It's called an old sinful nature. Well, doggie. And three of those things is revealed in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So sin is what can always be traced back to the thing called pride. Pride, P-R-I-D-E. We want our own way. Before you ever trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible says, according to the course of this world, we all walked that way. We all had the same kind of a mind of rebellion to God and children of rebellion, children of disobedience. That's how God sees us. Because we were lost, all we had was a sinful nature, and we walked according to the course of the world. Now that you know Christ is your Savior, God doesn't want us to walk according to the course of the world. He wants us to be different. So, he says the ultimate warrior needs to fight the ultimate enemy. And the ultimate enemy, chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, in verse 2, talks about the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to the devil himself. So we have the ultimate enemy. Every one of us has the same enemy. And that's why we'll almost all of us fight the same battles. Not the same kind at the same time. But in the course of our life, you'll be surprised. You will have fought the ultimate battle. 
God is going to reward us when we get to heaven because of the battles you've had to fight. Now, you may lose a little skirmish here and there, but you don't have to lose the war. Always keep getting up. When the devil knocks you down, always get back up. When you seem like you're defeated, always get back up. Always keep walking. The next thing I wanted to mention to you is the ultimate warrior needs the ultimate battle plan. In other words, you have to have a way to fight the devil. One is God says you don't fight the devil according to the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not with bazookas and, you know, AK-47s and hand grenades. You can't fight an enemy. You can't see like that because it's a spiritual warfare. So God says that he wants us to fight the battle, but it's uh, got to be fought. And you'll find these verses like this, according to his will, according to his will. In other words, according to his will is according to his word. So when you study the word of God, you're learning and getting some ammunition to fight the battle. When you don't study the Bible, don't have time to study, don't have time to memorize, you don't have time to go to church, never have time, you're not getting the ammunition you need to fight the battle you're going to face. You will have the battle, like it or not. It's not according to your choice. God is going to allow you to fight the battle. Ready or not, here it comes. Now, it's not more than what you could bear had you served Him and studied and prepared. But when you don't, you fail. And that's why a lot of God's children live a defeated Christian life. So he says this. He says, now if is the time to be saved, then now is the time to fight. Doesn't it say in the Bible that now is the accepted time? Salvation, now. Well, if now is the accepted time, now is the time to witness. Now is the time to serve. It's now. Most people, it is so easy to dedicate your life to the Lord, which is out there, and hard to dedicate the day which you do have. So you got to keep that in mind. So the ultimate warrior needs an ultimate battle plan. God has a plan, a way that will work. How for you to stay strong? He says, do not, do not be conformed to this world, because you can't fight his war according to the course of this world. You're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or discover what is that perfect and acceptable plan that God has for you. So there is something God has for you, and it will work. And you can fight the battles, and you can win if you want to win. But if you go through life and you always feel down and defeated and nothing ever works, that's your own fault. Do right. Find the, what the God talks about on how to fight the battle. 